Welcome to this week's edition of The Classroom Critics, a podcast by teachers. Um, and what we do every week, hopefully, is to honestly and hopefully entertainingly discuss some of history's greatest films. And um, this week, as I always am, I'm joined by my two good friends, Walter Freeman and Andrew Martino, both distinguished teachers and card-carrying cinephiles. And this is uh, the Shark Week edition, isn't it? Yeah. Is that, is that, is this just, was this a method? Uh, is, was there a method to our madness or is this just a coincidence? Because I didn't know that. I mean, I, it's something that pops up in my Facebook feed every week. I guess Shark Week is a, a thing for people. <laughs> and here we are doing Jaws. So I failed to mention that, but I guess aren't we cute, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a happy accident. Yeah. We're uh we're big on our pop culture here, but anyhow, we're doing uh, this week is as I mentioned, it's uh, it's it's Jaws. Uh, the uh, let's see, nineteen seventy five, of course, written by uh, or sorry, directed by Steven Spielberg. And my notes have uh, quit on me, so you guys are gonna have to help me out. Um, Roy Scheider. Yeah, Roy Scheider. Yep. Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. Um, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw, yep. Lorraine, Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody and, and Murray Hamilton as, as Mayor Vaughn. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, Spielberg's first big, big, big film, right? Yeah. Um, based on the novel of the same name. And this is the film that really put him on the map. And um, I, I guess before we get to the specifics of the film, I just want to throw that out, uh, th throw that out there at you guys. Um, why this film? Why did this film sort of basically invent the uh the blockbuster summer blockbuster film i mean there have been been big films before but this is uh this is something new this this really took the uh the industry by storm and i guess you can make the argument that films haven't or at least the industry was changed forever because of this film what makes spielberg films so appealing i i think this one just happened to be the perfect storm first of all it comes across in the summer it taps into, you know, moviegoers. It's an outstanding film. Yeah. And also what people forget is uh, the, the, the book was a sensation for the film. And so it just all came together and just people came out in droves to see this. But, you know, sharks get them in the door, but the quality of the film kept them there. I mean, right. this film did for the ocean what Psycho did for showers. <laughs> I, I literally didn't go in the ocean for 10 years after I saw this movie. Yeah, we, we, we were talking earlier on text and um, I saw this movie, I think, I didn't see it in the theaters. I was a little too young in 75, but I saw it on HBO in, in 77 or, or 78 maybe. And um, I didn't even go into the deep end of the pool after I saw this. That's how afraid I was. Yeah. yeah. You guys, have you guys ever seen on, um, I've seen this on Facebook a few times, I guess it must be somewhere on the Cape where they, uh, I, I think it's actually a tradition where there are, lake resorts or um, uh, summer resorts on, on water where they will sometimes screen the film on a harbor and people will watch it from boats, they'll watch it from rafts huh. uh, on, on floats. And uh, have you ever seen pictures of that? It's, I mean, I don't know how anyone could finish the film on a, on a raft <laughs> in, in the water, but uh, that's a thing. But um, yeah, have, have either of you, actually read this novel i haven't yeah, i have okay there's is um it, is it good there's a uh, no and uh there's an extended sequence in it with uh 
Quint is actually having an affair with Brody's wife and mm. it, it takes chapters and it's completely, it never pays off. It's completely irrelevant to the plot. Um, and, and I just remember that, the, you know, the book was interesting because as a kid, you know, I was fascinated with sharks. I still am. Yeah. But as far as it goes, it was, um, it was, yeah, it wasn't well-written novel. Yeah, P Peter Benchley was never really a, a, what one would call a literary writer. Um, I, I don't necessarily think he was a hack either, uh, but he was an entertainment type writer. And, you know, after this, he does The Deep. Um, I think that comes after Jaws. I don't know, maybe it comes before. Um, and he, he came out with a couple of other books, you know, trying to build off the success they'd had with the movie of, of Jaws. Did I, I, I correct, did I say Quint had the affair with? Yeah. It was, it was Hooper, sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. So if you think about it, the plot of this movie is, you know, I, I think Spielberg, from what I can tell, Walt, uh, just sort of boiled down the essence of the novel and just yeah. took out uh, what's, what's really kind of a very simple plot. I mean, it's, there's obviously complexities within it, but, um, you know, you have just this, obviously, this threat, this horror uh, that's happening. And it's just a, uh, a man versus nature kind of scenario, right? And um, I guess what it becomes is the technique of the film, you know, and, and really what Spielberg does to really just build up this threat. And right off the bat, he does like, you know, what a good filmmaker would do, a good storyteller does, is to just right away just show you that, you know, he wastes no time in showing us that danger is, is looming, you know, and almost like in a great horror tradition, like right at the beginning, you see this almost, you know, this anonymous couple just, you know, having their summer fling and um, someone ends up dead. And right off the bat, we just, we know, and I'm sure people knew going in what, you know, the basic danger was of this film, but, you know, right off the bat where we realized that um, these people are in trouble, you know, <laughs> you're, you're risking your life going uh, out into this, this water. And, um, and I also think that the, the score by John Williams is just, I mean, that Jaws theme is, is now become just as important as, as any of the characters in the film. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, two notes, right? The most famous two notes in right. cinema history. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think Spielberg, in fact, he's been compared, at least in this film, you know, the, the techniques of, of Hitchcock and just some of the things that he, that, that Hitchcock gave to um, cinematic technique, just the, the building of suspense. And the fact that we don't see the shark really for a while. I mean, uh, I didn't, you know, jot this down, but I, I don't know, we, we have to be pretty deeply in the, in, into the film before we actually see, see the shark. And it's true, I mean, it, in a day and age where we have filmmakers just constantly just hitting us over the head with what we're supposed to see, what we're supposed to, um, you know, just sort of really giving us what we, you know, it's, film's very visual now, but it's almost like what you don't see that scares us in this particular film. It's a I great that, shot. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. We don't, I, I think we're well into this film for an hour before we see the shark, other than maybe the dorsal fin and, and the, yeah. and, you know, other than that. But it's, it, you're right, it's building up suspense in, in a, an extraordinary way. Yeah, we're given we're given a lot of information on sharks. You know, we're shown pictures of sharks, and we see we see things. There's a great shot, as I was going to say, though, um, in the canal attack, uh, where the camera is going over the and you see the shark, just the outline of the shark swimming under that bridge, and you could see, you know, and this, I, I believe it's a 25 foot shark, which would be you know, extraordinary. 
great white. Um, I was in Florida once and they had on display a, a great white that had washed up on the beach. who had died and washed up on the beach. It was 15 feet. Wow. And right. the things are so round. They're like a school bus. That's how thick they are. And so for it to be 25 foot, but anyway, uh, I had to work that anecdote in there. Um, it was, it was quite impressive. It was the most beautiful animal I've ever seen, but, uh, to, he just gives us that shot where we see how big it is. And that's just part of the, the fear of this thing is, is not only is it massive and powerful and hungry and full of razor sharp teeth. We just, we just get the just little, you know, it's like, it's almost like, you know, years later in the movie alien, get the much of the alien but every time you do you're more scared than the last time yeah well i guess it goes to show you that nothing scares us more than our imagination right so when a good a good storyteller is able to tap into that give us little hints here and there um it could have been by and large you know also because of the technical limitations you know of of uh producing a, a shark you know for the for the camera so but that's, you know, kind of a gift in, in disguise where we're able to sort of, we, I mean, we all know what a shark looks like. We're all afraid of sharks just naturally. We, we've, you know, even a rudimentary knowledge of sharks is all we need to know. They have this, and it's described in the film, you know, these, these soulless eyes. And um, for all you shark lovers, I don't mean any, <laughs> any you know, I'm not trying to downplay uh, or insult sharks, but they, they just have a look of, um, you know, predator, just uh, everything about them is just predatory. And not only that, they just seem again, like, like they have no real rhyme, even though they do, but they have no real rhyme or reason as to what they want to kill and, and, um, and when and where they will. So I think all that is sort of part of the audience's prior knowledge. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, like and I mentioned this with the exorcist, this taps into a primal human fear exactly. you know, to be the bottom of the food chain uh, is not, where we're comfortable. But when you think about the ocean, you know, it's an understatement to say we're dwarfed by the ocean. There's that great scene in Moby Dick where the character falls off the boat and is just alone in the middle of the ocean and goes insane because of the enormity of it. And then you add that, this like massively, uh, perfectly adapted apex predator in there. And <clears throat> we are utterly helpless. Mm -hmm. You know, we're yep. never more vulnerable than when we're floating in the ocean. Right. I think I think you're absolutely correct. There's something about the ocean, like forests, right? That they're completely unknown and they, they dwarf us, to use your word, and I think it's a correct word to use. And it, not to get too Freudian, but there's an unconscious layer there that we don't know. Um, that goes back to what you said earlier, Bill, about the unknown. Um, you know, the ocean is so deep. There's that, that really now iconic scene in that, that first scene where we have the camera looking up at the female swimmer who's about to be killed with her legs. She's treading water. Um, and the camera is, you know, probably 10 or, or 15 feet below her. So she's in deep, deep water at this, at this point. But I want to bring up two points that I think are important, especially because of the story. So obviously, as we've mentioned, it's based off Peter Benchley's book. Peter Benchley was one of the two screenwriters um, and Carl Gottlieb was the second screenwriter. But there are really, there's a lot of Moby Dick. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Walter, in this book, um, in this movie. And it, it's almost as if it's, um, I don't want to say plagiarized, but a, 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 a reinterpretation of Moby Dick. There's some of the same themes that are happening in Moby Dick um, that, that are happening later in Jaws. And likewise... Funny you mention that before you get to your second point. In the book, Quint is actually killed by being pulled under by the shark 
right. attached to a harpoon. We don't see him die. He's just as dragged into the depths of the ocean. As Ahab is, right, yeah. right, right. So I, I didn't mean to interrupt your point. No, no, that's, yeah, yeah I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and that's not accidental, I think, on Benchley's part. Um, and then there's the old man in the sea, Hemingway's great uh, novella, uh, especially when they're talking about the hands and the ropes. Um, and if you hold them too long, it can, it can go right through your hands. So there's two really great American literary illusions in this, in this particular film. And I don't think it's accidental that this film has stayed um, so popular for so long. There, there's certain tropes that Spielberg is using um, that, that work. Yeah, sure. And, and, and another thing I think that makes it so effective is we, we know more about great white sharks since Jaws came out to today than we did from the history of mankind up until the movie Jaws. And obviously the game has changed and, and eventually spent the rest of his life trying to make amends for the damage he did to these animals with the, the misrepresentation of their actual behavior. He, he, he donated millions and he did research and all that. But um, I just wanted to say that if, if anyone is interested in a more uh, modern knowledge about the great white shark, there's a book called The Devil's Teeth by Susan Casey. And The Devil's Teeth refers to the Farallon Islands off the coast of San Francisco, which is a major feeding ground for great white sharks. And uh, it's a fascinating look into what we now know uh, about sharks. So eventually would have been proud because he, he really felt that he almost contributed to the extinction of these animals. So, okay, so... Uh, we can say this is a horror film, but there's not in the sense where, I mean, is the behavior, the behavior of the shark in this, in this film, in this story is pretty believable. Wouldn't you say, I mean, or would you say it's just almost like a, a demon possessed shark, but we, there's, that's not really, that's not really hit um, or emphasized. Would you say, I mean, is it sort of just like this, really hungry shark floating out, you know, just, just swarming the, uh, or, um, you know, going around this particular area. But I don't know, I, I suppose that another writer could have made this kind of, kind of a supernatural thing and sort of tapped into that more where this shark was some sort of, uh, you know, again, just this um, more of a horror, more of a horror, like emphasizing that, um, that mystical or whatever demon possessed or something more supernatural. But that's not really touched upon. It, it it doesn't seem to me like anyone in the film. I guess what I'm getting at is even Hooper, the expert. Does he ever go into? Does he ever say like, "Oh, this shark is acting very unusual," or um, "This is a this is an extraordinary circumstance situation." I mean, is this? I don't know anything about sharks really, but this is pretty abnormal, right? For well, but that's my point. Spielberg knows that we know almost nothing about these animals and Benchley knew. And so when he writes a story, you don't have to. You, what you know is, you know, what you've seen or, or pictures. Sharks have always been misunderstood. Right. Uh, you know, there's a famous painting of a shark attacking a boat made by a guy who's clearly never seen a shark because he gave it human eyes. If you ever look it up, it's a classic painting. But so we only know, you know, or we knew at the time, very surfacey things. And, and that plays into it because you don't, you don't know, is this, is this natural behavior? I think sharks in film have always been portrayed, you know, incredibly inaccurately, uh, whether it's deep blue sea where they're genetically modified mm. or um, there was one called the shallows, I think where uh, apparently the shark is territorial over the carcass of a dead whale and this girl gets in its, in its territory. So, I mean, and, and again, I don't think any of it is, is realistic. So in this case, I, I think for a shark to habitually attack humans, it's, uh, you know, bears will do that if they start to 
equate humans with food, but sharks don't, in real life, sharks don't see humans as food. They, when they bite you, they test, they're testing you to see what you are. And of course, when a several ton animal tests you, it's going to be more often than not fatal. Going to hurt. Yeah. But they're actually ambush hunters. They're not stalkers. And this, this film sort of portrays the shark as sort of attracted to humans as food mm-hmm. and, and stalking them. And then this, the scene to me that's, that's wildly inaccurate is they're, they're putting out miles and miles of chum line out, out in the ocean and they only attract one shark. Yeah, right. And it's the one yeah, so looking for. It kind of portrays the shark as you know, having these you know, evil intentions, mm-hmm. uh, almost like in a, in a you, you know, bird, the birds, you know, by Hitchcock mm-hmm. where you have, uh, but the difference is everyone, you know, we coexist with birds quite regularly. And, uh, the behavior in that film obviously is otherworldly, which adds, adds to it. Um, I think one thing that's interesting too, is you guys mentioned the, um, the, the ominous nature of, of the sea and the, it's just naturally dark. Even in the daytime, you can barely see anything in, in it. You know, you can't, you don't know what's two feet below the surface. You know, I, I personally am not a fan of swimming in the ocean. You know, I'll go, I'll go to the beach, but I, I rarely go in there. I have no idea what's <laughs> going to be around my legs. And <laughs> so I, for me, the, the ocean, I mean, I love the ocean, I, I, but there's something very sinister about it. You know, uh, if you ever walk on a dock late at night and, you know, you just look at the dark waters. It's there's something just uh, that kind of gets in your head, and I think it's it's been something as you pointed out, Andrew. Something that's always been um, the case for you know since we've encountered the ocean. But one thing that's interesting, I think, about this movie is that it, we have the um, you know the tourist town. You know, we have vacation land, kind of obviously right next to it, coexisting. And I think one thing that makes the film you know a little bit I should say even more scary is the fact that, you know, you have um, all these vacationers who, you know, let's face it, vacation is a, it's a form of escapism. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you think about when you go on vacation is, you know, dying or, you know, or, or being attacked by a shark, being eaten. Um, and it just makes these people like just perfect, perfect prey, you know, and uh, people having the time, the times of their lives and, you know, and, and this, especially for me, the, the scene that really, um, I think ups the ante quite a bit is when the, the kid, you know, the kid dies. And, uh, and this, it makes it even more, I think, terrifying is the fact that these people have to, uh, have to be thinking about this while they're on, on vacation. Uh, Martha's Vineyard, right? Is it? Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Can you imagine though, uh, that people would ignore a very real, incredible, natural threat for the sake of the economy. That seems to me unbelievable. <laughs> I don't understand. And, the and, premise. and it's, it has now become the American way, hasn't it? And, you know, I, I think the real monster of, of the film is, is the mayor um, who, 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 you know, he knows that shutting down the beach is probably the, the, the thing they have to do, but he doesn't, he doesn't confront that. Uh, he's yeah. even when 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 the you know when the child is killed and 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 Brody's son has has gone into shock in the hospital he's thinking of a way to to play off it you know he's the typical pro, uh, politician yeah yeah I mean it, it, today I just I don't know if you guys heard this in the news but uh, it sort of trickles down to smaller organizations in baseball you have the Florida Marlins right uh, nineteen cases of of uh, COVID. Yeah. 
And they knew this. They knew a certain number of their players were infected by this, and they went and played a game. Yeah. Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, knowing fully. So someone in charge um, said to themselves, you know what, um, play, play ball. You know, we, <laughs> we, need this, we need this revenue here. So, um, yeah, so it's, I think this film points out, you know, some problems that are quite obvious when we, you know, when, when profits are first and foremost when you're trying to uh, make decisions. What are you willing to sacrifice for, for, the, for the sake of the economy? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really attacking that in, in any way other than asking that particular question, because I think now, I mean, as we're, as we're doing these series of podcasts in, in COVID, in, in quarantine, um, this question is, is put to us every day. And I yeah. think that, you know, this is why Jaws is, I think, even more relevant probably today. We can see it in a different light because we're putting profit really before the, the well-being of, of, of Americans. And we, we've, this is Toni Morrison's, I think, brilliant take. We've ceased to think of ourselves as citizens and we're thinking of ourselves as, as taxpayers. So we think because we pay taxes, we expect something. And we're not thinking about ourselves as citizens, that we're all contributing to society in a certain resonant way. And that's not to say it's an easy decision. That's exactly um, right. No, right. Not at because all. in this particular town, you know, a summer of no revenue it, it would be detrimental for that whole community, right. which is why I think one criticism I would, would have had, I would have of the film is perhaps the portrayal of that, you know, he, he seemed to be from central casting, like corrupt yeah. mayor, you know, uh, he didn't seem even slightly, maybe I have to watch it again, but he didn't seem all that conflicted. <laughs> he's, he's a character that doesn't grow, right? And that's, and that's one of the first rules that you shouldn't break with storytelling. Yeah. But, change. but it makes the message a little bit more clear. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so there's that. Yeah, I also like the fact that he wore the, the, these gaudy suits with... Uh, with anchors on them. Anchors, <laughs> right. I think it speaks to the strength of the film, though, in that it's still relevant in that, you know, and again, he's a sort of a trope type of character, but yeah. it's also one faced with a very real dilemma that we can all relate to, the economy yeah. versus, you know, taking this chance. And when you look at this this film, one of the things that makes it great, better, I think, than any of the CGI epics we get today is that there's real things at stake here. These are human characters yeah. with human motivations, even if we don't agree with them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're all in this situation. And it's not necessarily about the shark, but it's about them. Yeah. And we care about them. Uh, yep. Yep. So. Um, I think... Uh, Roy Scheider's character. I'm sorry, I, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Brody. 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 He um, he's confronted by the mother, yep. and uh, I think that's. I mean, right there, he had the power. It seemed to uh, to save lives, and I think the decision came down to him at some point. So I guess he was the one that Spielberg really put the burden of. Uh, did he have the power to shut down the beach? Was he someone who who could have exer uh, exercised his, you know, his position as a law enforcer? I think it's left ambiguous in the film because he tries to shut it down, and then the mayor and and his his gang comes and says, "You can't do that. You have to get the aldermen to kind of vote. One person can't necessarily shut down uh, the beach uh, in in that sense." Right. 
So it makes you wonder, I mean, again, it, it couldn't be more relevant as you said, guys, in, in this, I mean, so let's say this community was shut down. Um, shouldn't there be uh, precautions in place to weather that storm? Not necessarily, I mean, what small business has vaults of money lying around to, <laughs> to but um, I guess, you know, not to get too deep into the nitty gritty of politics, but there, there, there seems to be there should be some sort of uh i guess in our system a a way to weather the storm better uh, which we're now we're now learning because um this this may happen again it's on some level or it will just a question of not when but uh will but when in our particular case you can use a bizarre logic that okay we shut the beaches down there haven't been any shark attacks so it must be safe to go back right. in the water you know, and again, that's that's the modern parallel too. You know, everybody's staying home. This this disease is, it's a fantasy. It's a fiction. There's no more cases, and so people are like take the mask off and run to Walmart, yeah. and suddenly you know we're exploding again. And every everyone really wanted to believe with all their hearts that that little shark was the culprit. That's right. And it, it just shows you how, you know, how um, gullible, desperate people can be. That little eleven-foot tiger shark, <laughs> yeah. willing, willing to believe anything. You're right. I'd like to go back to that scene if we can for just a minute because I think that's one of the greatest scenes that I've seen in the last I, I don't know forty-five years um, for for film when when Mrs. Kinter slaps Brody. Um, I'm not exactly sure, and I've seen this film maybe twenty times, and I saw it last night, and I watched it with my eleven-year-old daughter, and it was her first time watching it, so she has all of these questions um, throughout the film. But that scene particularly struck her as well because she was absolutely on the side of Mrs. Kinter. And yeah. me, being a 51-year-old, I'm thinking, I, I'm not, I understand her reaction, but I'm not exactly sure it was fair um, to Brody. But, uh, you know, it's, it's that scene that, that really becomes, uh, it, it really drives the point home of what's going on up until then. Really, it raises the stakes big time, you know, in the next scene we see him at home, you know, yeah. Uh, drowning the sorrows and right, right. Uh, it humanizes him quite a bit, and I think it really puts him in a position um, to really try to up the ante on his part and, and really yeah. do what it takes to uh, get this thing, you know, solve this problem. And I, I just think it's interesting too that she she said one of the things she said to him is, "I just wanted you to know that." Yeah, <laughs> very simple and direct. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's the knowledge again, right? This goes back to an earlier point that one of you made, you know, it's about knowing and what we fear is the unknown. And we build these things like the shark up in our minds to a degree that it becomes incomprehensible to us. And, right. and Brody is, is really, he's just an ordinary man. He's, yeah. he's, there's nothing really special about him. But I wanted to point out that, that Mrs. Kinter um, was played by a woman whose name is Lee Fierro. Um, and she, is, she recently died at the age of 91 um, due to complications from the coronavirus. Jeez. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 I don't know what to make of that other than to mention it. And I think it's um, extremely interesting. Well, and another thing, too, in the news today, in Maine, they recorded their first death by great white shark attack. 63-year-old woman was attacked and then subsequently passed away. Uh, and, and sharks are always in the news up here in New England now because the conservation efforts with the seals brought the seal population back, which brought the great whites back. Right. And I, a lot of the shark news is, is put forth in the media. It almost... Uh, 
I don't know how to put it, but it's 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 almost like a, an entertainment. You know, what yeah. I'm saying we we have these these people dying, but I, and then I hear people on um, social media just getting all giddy about Shark Week, and uh, I'm not exactly. I mean, I couldn't really tell you what Shark Week is. I, I'm I'm not really sure, but it's I guess it's it has something to do with the height of shark attacks and and I guess it's a real fun. You know, I don't know. People get get their kicks from hearing about these things in the um, this threat <laughs> of potentially uh, meeting a shark when you're on the beach. But I, I, I don't know. What do you make of it? I mean, what, what, what is this? Is, it, is this a sort of dance of death kind of thing that in, in, a, in a different? Um, I think it goes back to us trying to understand what we don't, what we previously had not understood. So Shark Week, for, and I haven't seen a lot of it, but I've seen episodes here and there. It is from the point of view, the ones I've seen from scientists that are studying sharks, that are trying to, yeah. right? That are trying to tell us a little bit more about sharks, their habitat. And actually sharks, the, the greatest threat is, is humankind to sharks. So uh, not only are, are we the biggest threat to sharks, we're the biggest threat to coral reefs. And, and it goes back to the, to, um, to the environment. And so I, I think, go ahead. No, go ahead. Popularity of Shark Week is commensurate with, with our, fascination with sharks uh, discovery channel showed it i think one year and it just took off and so it became a tradition but we watch i mean if you watch those documentaries it's fascinating yeah you know i mean i i, I can't get enough of watching people in shark cages surrounded by great white sharks um yeah completely the opposite of what happens to hooper when he goes in his cage where we see the shark you know demonically possessed trying to to get at him right yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what I find interesting too is once they decide to go out onto the water and confront the shark um, in a meaningful way, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a three pronged approach, right? You have, um, you sort of have the, the, you know, the intellectual take, the scholarly take, the, the knowledgeable scientific approach as to how we need to deal with this particular shark. And you have also the, um, almost the, uh, the mysticism as well, almost like a religious approach with, um, help me out guys. Clint. Clint. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, Andrew, you, you, have, you have the everyman, right? So it's almost like a, a, a blue collar right. approach. Which approach in the end would you say actually solves the problem? Did it take all of them? You know, it was one mostly... Uh, responsible. I, I think it's 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 Brody who ends up killing the shark. Yeah, he remembers that that comment that Hooper makes, almost an offhand comment about the cylinder, um, the oxygen cylinder that it can blow up. And there was a picture in the early part of the film that that showed something similar to that. And um, it's really the it's it's how people can, and it doesn't really take heroes, or it's a, it's a a way of re-envisioning what the hero is, that the hero is, is no longer this, this kind of Greek semi-god semi or demigod, but it could be all of us. I think that's a fundamentally American uh, point of view, um, or at the very least, a modern point of view. Right. I don't know if you agree with that, Walter. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you're right. And, and you know, he's, he's the reluctant hero who he's terrified of the water. Right. Uh, he's trying to survive by climbing to the top of the mast of a sinking ship. Hooper's gone, Quint's gone. And 
you know, he solves it with guns. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't even consider that. Yeah. It's also, that's this part of the movie for me is the part that changes too. So it becomes less of a horror movie for me, oddly enough, because here's where we see the shark tracking them down and more of an adventure tale. Um, it is really, the, it, yeah. this is, this is the, the adventure aspect. And this, I think, is wonderfully complemented with the music that goes along. So my daughter picked up on the fact that in all of the, in most of these ominous situations, the music is kind of lighthearted. You know, the, the, the boat catches fire and the music is lighthearted. And, and, and there's, there's something upbeat about it, although these, these three individuals are facing extreme danger. Well, when he's right. in the widow's pulpit and they're doing their their form of the Nantucket sleigh ride, where they're shooting mm -hmm. the barrels into the into the uh, shark and they're chasing it, and there's this shot, this tracking shot, the water's rushing by, and the the music is is high adventure music. Yeah, it's true, and and you know, uh, we're all kind of our, our primal instincts are awakened. The 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 thing we fear most is being hunted by this predator, and here we are, you know, our apex predators on the surface mm -hmm. of the water, you know, shooting barrels right, into right. this thing and chasing it. Uh-huh. What does it say at the, you know, by the end of the film that the resolution had to come, maybe not had to come, but did come through violent means? Um, would it have been as satisfying of an ending if um, perhaps the scholarly or scientific approach won the day and the shark was simply captured or, or led off this particular area. I think today that might work, but I think in 1975, and I didn't see it in the theaters, but I would assume that people were cheering when the shark was blown up. Yes, <laughs> because we, we spent, you know, I saw it in the theaters, I was 15, I, I went with my parents, and I spent most of the film <laughs> clutching the armrest of my chair, and I, the only other time I really did that was either The Exorcist or uh, the opening of Saving Private Ryan. But, uh, and, and when he went into the water and the shark's there, and you know, when that canister blew up and he missed how many, I don't know how many times he misses. And then he, of course he gets to say his, his big catchphrase line, smile you son of a bitch, yeah. uh, and blows it up. The, the release of tension, because there's then that shot of the shark in silhouette and blown to smithereens and you know it's not coming back. And yeah. although I, I have to admit, I kept thinking, there's going to be a lot of sharks in the area, right? <laughs> right, with all the blood, yeah. But uh, yeah, the you're right. There was cheering. Mm. Okay, there, there was absolute cheering, and we it's felt the underdog. Safe. Yeah, yeah, it's, we were safe. It, it, for me, it's the it's that same kind of momentum that that Sylvester Stallone uses with Rocky, right? It's the underdog who who takes on something that's much larger than he is. Uh, because it is very much a male-dominated society in this film, and 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 conquers that. And and in this case, it's unlike Rocky. It's not another human being, but it's it's man versus nature. But this right. film is is one of those films that if you have a chance, you have to see this on the big screen, and you have to sit in the third row center, <laughs> because so many of these shots are from you know water level, yeah. and and you know. The, the, the sense of, of almost claustrophobia and fear that you're in the water there. And, and when the screen is 40 feet wide surrounding your peripheral vision, it just grabs you like, like a small screen cannot. Yeah. Right. I, I was really struck by, especially this time, those, those scenes that take place on the Orca um, when they're out and they're really not that far out. Cause in certain scenes you can still see land, um, but it feels like they're in the middle of nowhere that this tiny broken down boat 
um, that's in this immense water, but it's just beautifully shot. And I think it absolutely holds up today in, in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I show this in film studies, they're absolutely you know, mesmerized by it. They enjoy it. Um, so is, this you know, the, is this the first time they've, that a lot of them have seen it when you show it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I find most of the films that I show them, um, <laughs> any film that's before 2005, you know, is, is something that they often have never, they've not seen. Um, now what about, um, Robert Shaw's speech? What's, um, what do you guys find to be the power in that? Like, what's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, you don't see monologues like that anymore. No. I mean, they, that just seems to, it seems to not exist, you know. Um, I don't know. I just think sometimes writers think that, uh, you know, it will stop a film dead in its tracks and take you out of it. But I just, you know, the art of the monologue is just such a wonderful thing. And it's self-contained, you know, and it's one of those monologues that people will anthologize or use for auditions. Um, what do you find to be the power of that monologue and its purpose? First of all, I have to say I'd like to explode the myth that that he improvised that it was very much not improvised, and it was also very much a second take. Uh, he he had a hand in rewriting it, but the first time he tried to deliver it, he was drunk mm. and he botched it, and he was mortified. And he went to Spielberg and said, "Let me let me do it again." They did it the next day, and it was a perfect take. But to answer your question, Bill, is how still he is when he delivers those lines, his voice, I mean, he's, he's, he's describing a scene uh, of the ultimate nightmare you can imagine. And it's a true story. It's a true story. Yeah. yeah. And he just sits there and his voice never, never rises very high or goes very low. And he's just like, you know, 111, 1100 men went into the water three days later, three, you know, and he just never, he never chews the scenery. And, and to me, and you just, you're hanging on every word. Right, right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It's in the, the delivery. And, and Robert Shaw is absolutely brilliant in that scene. I think it's one, this might be his last film or second to last film before he dies, I think, of a heart attack um, soon after this is released. He played, um, in a, I probably have it here, but he played a, a lighthouse uh operator i don't know if you call what you call them but uh soon after um no this it was about four years after um was it was that long in, really um, yeah he was in a, a pirate movie and he was in a force 10 from navarone with harrison ford that i i thought that came first i guess i'm okay no, you, it, no because remember because it was ford got the part because of han solo that's which right. was after Jaws. that's but, right Right. You know, in, in movie years where, you know, we see an actor in a film to four years is a blink of an eye. And so, um, but he's just so yeah. utterly brilliant in that scene. And it's, it, it speaks so much to the power of storytelling too. Here are three guys that are semi-drunk just telling war stories. And then all of a sudden this lighthearted moment becomes really, really somber. And it, that, that, that transition is so subtle that you just automatically find yourself in the story. Mes sure. I, I was anyway mesmerized uh, by Robert Shaw. I could not take my eyes off. off yeah. Yeah, that monologue is scarier to me than any other moment. I agree. I think you're right. Was that speech in the book? I wonder. I don't recall, but I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. 
Huh. That's perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Quint is Quint is a character that I, I I I even when I first saw this as a kid, he was my favorite character uh, in the film because he's so. He, he's almost like somebody out of James Fenmore Cooper. He's this kind of uh, Natty Bumpo-like character that does things his own way. He doesn't go with the crowd. Uh, if you want to do something, you're going to do it his way. Um, it's 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 almost it's the same it's the same spirit that Rick in Casablanca is when he says, "I'm just worried about me." It's and it's this kind of American picking yourself up by your bootstraps and and taming the the wilderness. Right. And to me, the, 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 the quietude in which he delivers that speech of absolute utter horror sets up how awful his death is because, yeah. you know, he's, you know, he's kind of subconsciously spent his life killing sharks right. and getting back at it, but never getting emotional about it. But when he's sliding down the boat into the mouth of that shark and he knows what's coming and he, he, he gets in there and bites him and he screams. It's the first time you see him, you know, show fear yeah and to me that was this this man was such a towering figure and he'd been through such horror and for him to be so primally afraid uh, of that last moment um to me that you know that's, that's like wet your pants fear and i think that's the perfect ending to a scene that begins maybe a half hour earlier when they're all sitting around and and He's just sitting in the in the in the chair, and the the fishing line just almost imperceptibly moves, and you see you know Quint's eyes just very briefly go down, and then he quietly gets himself ready to to catch this fish. He has a throwaway line when he's got the fish when he's got the shark on the line that a friend of mine reminded me of today when we were talking about the film, and he said uh, something along the lines of uh, "Can't wait to see the look on the taxidermist's face when I bring this in." Yeah, <laughs> that's a shout out to my friend Jay who reminded me of that line today. Right. So, so Bill, as a writer and, and all this and that sort of thing um, with pacing, what, what's your take on that scene, that monologue that just seems to stop this the momentum of the story and yet somehow add to it? What, what's your take on it? Well, I think it's I think it's perfect. You know, if you're talking about rhythm of, of storytelling, I think it's, it's it comes at a perfect time and. Um, I think it's quite literally the quiet before the storm, you know, and um, it, it deepens his character quite a bit. And uh, I just think it makes his death even more significant. It sort of adds to his mythic quality. Um, but in the end, no matter, how, you know, what it comes to, uh, what he's, regardless of how whatever mythological or spiritual or otherworldly out of, time and place his character is which i think is emphasized by that speech yeah in the end he's screaming <laughs> to death you know he's screaming like anyone else yeah. would if you're being devoured by a shark and um and i think it just shows us that you know no matter how in tune with any worldview or ide ideology you might have or spiritualism uh when you're shark food <laughs> uh we're all equal you know? we scream the same. I think. what's that we scream the same yeah and, and, and taste the same probably <laughs> so I, I just thought that's one of the things i really that st st uh, stuck out to me and I, I haven't seen this film in about maybe three or four years until last night or two nights ago 
for some reason that just struck me when I saw him dying. I said to myself, um, part, of me, part of me said, well, why isn't he dying in a more spiritually, um, this might sound foolish to say, but you know, maybe with a bit more understanding. <laughs> but when it comes down to it, he had, you know, he was getting uh, dismembered. <laughs> he wanted slowly. to be like, I regret the sharks I've killed as he drag him under the water. <laughs> it's, it's the exact opposite of how Ahab is killed by Moby Dick. There's a quiet dignity to Ahab's death. There you go. There isn't. Yeah. It, this, it, which is, this is much more realistic because it shows that there is no dignity in death, that we all kind of lose our dignity when we're done. Especially in that manner. Maybe that would have been a perfect time for his monologue at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, you just, you know, he, he escaped such a horrific fate so long ago. Right. But spent the rest of his life tempting that fate. And, right. and, and not wearing and, a life jacket. And yeah. 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 And then being forced. I don't to, think, I don't think his character could have died any other way either. I, I mean, yeah. He, he probably knew this that day was coming for a long, long time. It seemed very, uh, very fitting. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's certainly a, an allegorical tone to this entire film, you know, going back to the mayor, you know, um, you know, if we're looking at this, this story in allegor allegorical terms, you know, him being a type in our, is, is it's acceptable, you know, it's acceptable because that's how allegories are where you, you know, a character represents not a person, but a, a mindset or a, an emotion or a point of view that's, you know, that sort of dehumanizes that character, but for effect. Yeah. Um, and I, th I just think that's, that's the nature of this film. Uh, you have Jaws as sort of like the, the symbol of evil for you know, just the, you know, just pure evil, you know, just killing for no apparent reason. It's um, just what it does. Um, you know, and the symbolism may not be completely subtle, but in a lot of the, the story, but I don't think, you know, I think this film is, is meant to be um, pretty clear and, and, and um, its message seem, seems to be very boiled down into, um, you know, the fact that it takes place on the 4th of July and yeah. simultaneously pinpointing problems with the capitalist system um, it just, it just seems to fit really perfectly in this particular, which by the way, I think it's very interesting that coming from perhaps the most capitalistic filmmaker ever. Yeah. <laughs> that, might be, that might be, I think the point it's not, if I can take an alternative point of view and it's not one I'm necessarily believing by the way, but perhaps this is less um, a, a, a criticism of capitalism and more of, we shouldn't be putting all of our eggs into the capitalism basket as we have done, right? That there, there's only one basket and we've, we've put everything on, on, or if it, to, you know, use a different metaphor, we put all of our chips on black 19 and that's capitalism. And, that's and true. I think what this film shows and, and certainly what we're going through today with the, with the global pandemic is that um, capitalism is, is it's, it's, it's on a precipice. Uh, it doesn't take much to to tear down the entire system, right? You know, I think it goes for uh, almost all systems, but I think that in this case, I think you're right. I think Spielberg perhaps is not. Um, I mean, I, I don't see how he can, as as someone who is a very, very, very wealthy individual who makes a lot of money, versus you know, on 
you know, through the market. Um, I'm not sure if, if he's necessarily criticizing capitalism in, in, on the whole, but perhaps just pointing out, you know, the, uh, the problems that we often face in some of the decision, the, the tough decisions that any right system, any political system, I mean, this, this goes for every single system um, that man has ever come up with that, there are decisions that are made in the mo- in, in certain moments that uh, where there are very high stakes, and sometimes we make good ones, sometimes we make poor ones, and um, it's it's almost unavoidable. And sometimes sometimes there are no good choices. <laughs> and I, I, I would I agree with you one hundred percent. And I would point out that this is what really makes Brody the hero, not necessarily the fact that he kills the shark, but he's the person with the conscience. The mayor doesn't have a conscience. There you go. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the end, he's the problem solver. And, right. and perhaps whatever, someone who is perhaps perhaps overly, what's the word, um, is represented by uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character, just, you know, the, 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 the data-driven, book-driven, um, cerebral approach. Sometimes that's not the the basket you want to put all your eggs in. Right. Uh, certainly not the um, mystical or mythological or however you want to put it, the, um, the ideolo- ideological of, um, again, I'm... I'm, I'm Mint, yeah. Uh, when it comes down to it, perhaps it's just... Uh, Ingenuity in the moment, um, eh, represented by Roy uh, Scheider's character. So he's, he's the one I think that really has the interest of the community at heart. He doesn't there have his own job. He's not thinking about his own job. Hooper is. He's he's at least in part. He's thinking about what what can I do to to study this particular shark. And Quint is after the ten thousand dollars. And, and I think that those characters stop. Those are tributaries that only go so far where we see a, a much uh, a one that goes a lot further with, with Brody. Yeah, it seems to me like, especially with the scene that we talked about earlier with the mother uh, confronting him, where it, with him, it's become, okay, I'm doing this for human, for the sake for human reasons, for uh, uh, how we want to put it, um, just doing the right thing, compassion, uh, morality. When it comes down to it, he's out in that boat trying to kill that shark for the right reasons for, for right what reason. most people would say are the right reasons. Um, it, which was certainly generated by the horrible experience, the horrible non-decision that he made earlier in the story. Uh, whereas, as you said, um, the others are just making decisions based on either profit or for uh, scientific pursuits where I guess we need to make decisions in the end based on, Humanity, based on doing the right thing, no matter what system you're trying to uh, work within. I also want to go ahead, Walter. I'm sorry. And even admitting that you were wrong and trying to atone for it. Yeah. You know, and and as they said, courage isn't the absence of fear, but the ability to carry on despite your fear. And he gets on that boat despite his fear of the water and, uh, and, and to go out to try to make up for what he knew was the wrong decision. I think you're absolutely right. And and another point that backs that up is when the mayor says after uh, Mrs. Kinter slaps him, the mayor said, I'm sorry, chief, she's wrong. And, and, and Brody says, no, she's not. He knows that, that she was justified in doing that. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. 
No, it's and good. I think, also, I, I, I want to give a shout out to Lorraine Gary, who plays, you know, the chief's wife, who I think is, she's this quiet strength uh, of the film. I think she does a phenomenal job uh, as an actor in, in this in this picture. Um, so good that you almost forgive her for the last Jaws that she was in, uh, where they go down to the Caribbean, which was, you know, with Michael Caine, uh, which was absolutely awful. But she's, she's a character, I think, in this, and, and her acting ability doesn't get enough credit. Um, because I really think she's quite good. Absolutely, yeah. There, there doesn't seem to be. I don't know. I I I wanted to see almost a uh, going back to the first time I've seen it. I wanted to see a uh, you know a female presence on that on that boat. Yeah. <laughs> you think that this film lacks? You think if this film was remade today, um, that might that might change? Not out of necessarily political correctness, but out of. Uh, um, you know that just seems to be a uh, the representation we want to we want to see solve this particular issue. I think with films like Wonder Woman, we are starting to see that that strong female character who can fight and, and do some that it isn't the 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 male that has to protect the the society, but we we have stronger female characters. But to answer your question, I think no, I don't think Hollywood has learned its lesson yet. I don't think they're willing to 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 quite make that leap, despite the fact that there are more there are increasing roles for women that are that are showing them in positions of of strength. Yeah, one of the comments my wife often makes when we see a film, she'll she'll see the uh, you know the the age difference between a particular uh, male lead and the <laughs> whoever he's married to or is 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 seeing, and I think she made a comment with this particular film. Uh, Anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll take this moment then to let, let us never forget that one, one of the almost forgotten victims of the shark attack is the dog on the beach. That's right. The, the guy Very throwing true. the stick out yeah. uh, and, and the dog doesn't come back right before Alex is. Uh, That's attacked. right. So, that, so we know the shark's in the area and he, and he gets that, that sort of, uh, to me, that's a little, it's almost a, th a throwaway chiller because there's then that shot of the guy walking along the surf, calling his dog's name yeah. and he's not coming back. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's it, again, Spielberg throughout the, the film, less is more in a lot of cases. And, and I want to address that briefly if we can. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot has been made of the fact that the shark didn't work right. The mechanical shark. And so he was forced to be minimalistic in his approach, approach to shark. But I watched this film so many times and see it so well structured that I, I think that's only, I think that's apocryphal. I don't think that that's necessarily true because he does so much that's, and someone else said this, Bill, I believe you did, that's Hitchcockian in this film, including that shot, the, the reverse trolley shot, which is called the Jaws shot, which is just the opposite of the vertigo shot from yeah. Hitchcock. That I think that, you know, it's, it's almost, um, he's he's glossing over the fact that he really crafted this as well as he did because the minimalistic nature of the shark is so well done all throughout the film i don't think it can be pinpointed just to a malfunctioning yeah. uh, mechanical shark so not at all no and i've seen spielberg films that are that i just couldn't stand and films of his that are breathtaking genius yeah and to me the difference is always when he tells the human story and not the CGI or special effects story for the most part. You know, if I take something like Ready Player One or BFG versus Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, and Jaws, 
what's the difference is that the human element comes forward more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in the end, how many victims does, does the shark take? We, uh, we have the, the young lady at the beginning, the child. Who, who, by the way, should have known not to go swimming at night. Yeah, that's true. Or a big predator. But they, they, that's the feeding time. Anyway, okay. Sorry. I, <laughs> her. <laughs> yes. Um, the dog, the child. Ben Gardner. Um, ben Gardner. His that's right. Ben Gardner's boat. boat. Yeah. Yeah. That scene, by the way, was filmed in a swimming pool in Los Angeles with the with the head coming out, which was filmed later. Just wow. absolutely came out of my seat on that one. My daughter jumped halfway off uh, out of the room. Yeah, good luck. Which I to thought it was pretty clever of the shark to decapitate the man from his boat and stick his head back in the hole in the boat. Right. <laughs> well done. We got four so far. And then, uh, and Quinn, right? Yeah, Quint. Yeah. That's it? No, no. The, the guy in the canal. That's uh, right. Who, who, his leg floats to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So four people, and, no, five people and one hound dog, one dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's got, that's it, huh? That's it. I can't think of any others. I mean, I think there's a sweet spot, I guess, when it comes to, uh, with films like this if the thing was just sort of eating people left and right, eventually it would, you get desensitized to it. I think that's what a lot of uh, filmmakers would do now. They'd make the shark just constantly swallowing people by the dozens and become almost uh, just way over the top. Yeah. Well, well, but there's that scene where the guys put the roast on the big hook and they're standing on the pier and that scene where the, you know, the, it pulls the pier out and the guys fall in the water and you're like, oh, crap they're in the water with the shark but then the pier turns around yeah it's chasing him yeah <laughs> swim don't look back and they make it so again you know bill it speaks to bill's point you know we you know the terror of that scene didn't need anyone to die yeah yeah exactly right i just love how we learn i don't love it but i just i think it's very effective when you see the you know the dog dies just by seeing the stick yeah he doesn't have to show it, right? Doesn't have to show it. Um, it's you know, it's very Hitchcockian, where you just uh, we just learn things very subtly. You know, we just uh, it just visual, just 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 through a visual, just a simple little visual can tell us all we need to know. You know, and sometimes it's it's more effective than seeing the the dog yeah. uh, going into the shark's mouth and being devoured. So, yeah. I think that's the you, testament of a true filmmaker that that. Yeah. Spielberg trusted his instincts on that. Absolutely. Um, have you seen any of the, the sequels to this? <laughs> yeah, all of them. I think I've seen them all as well. How many are there? Three? There's, there's no, no I think we're up to like six now. Oh, no, then I haven't seen them all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think I saw th two and three. One, and then one, well, three was 3D, wasn't it? Three was 3D with, with Lewis Gossett Jr., I think, and, and um, Dennis Quaid. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, and then maybe there's only four, and then the fourth one with um, uh, Lorraine Gray comes back with Michael Caine, and they Michael go to Caine. Caribbean. Yeah, the second one was the second one was passable, but it was just a rehash, I think, of the of the first film. So what is it, is uh, with the sharks like Jaws 
brothers or something? Or, <laughs> like, are they, are they just? <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. This time it's personal. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> part of the show. Right. Well, Shark Kane, uh, um, had, a, had a twin brother. My, yeah. Michael Caine said he's never seen the film, but he has seen the house that it bought. And right, yeah. <laughs> Good for you, Michael. Now, is there a more classic film, iconic film, with that that has you know that has as many crappy sequels as Jaws? I mean, Rocky is up there, but even Rocky's Ro up there. You know, yeah. Rocky has a couple of you know Rocky two and three are. You know, decent movies. Yeah. Alien. Um, you, you could argue the. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, the, the the sequels haven't all been just horrendous, but they've never, you know, equaled. Although I will say, Aliens, the second one was just as good for me as as the first. It was. What about like Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth? Uh, let's you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, there's a list of them. We I'm could add um, the Indiana Jones series. You know. But with the original film being just a, a bona fide classic, you know, and, and yeah. it just, to me, Jaws has so many unworthy follow-ups, which I haven't seen. I, I can't speak to The horror film, I'm glad they never did, uh, to my knowledge, did a sequel to, which I think is an underrated horror film, is uh, the Kurt Russell's, or John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Um, just a, a wonderful ending to a film. and Yeah. Well, yeah. You know bigger body count that it would be the sequel and be like, Ugh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess film studios have been trying to uh, get Spielberg to do a sequel to ET for decades now. And for some reason, that's one movie. He, he just says, Nope, no sequel to that. But you know, other, other movies is perfectly fine with. I, I um, read that ET was unofficially a sequel to close encounters of the third kind. Hmm. Um, I I guess you'd have to look at the term sequel very loosely, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it certainly has the same spirit where you have, um, now we're getting into a different podcast, but you have the central character, by the way, Richard Dreyfuss and, uh, yeah. Wilson Connors being kind of like this child, um, you know, he has this child mentality or spiritual, uh, spiritual child that sort of brings out his curiosity throughout the movie. But I mean, as well to do that one. I'm in the minority of people. I, I didn't care for ET. I wasn't crazy about it either. I agree with you on that. Didn't do it for me. Yeah. I've seen it once and never felt the desire to go back. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I mean, I, you know, I think it's a, it seems to be a film aimed towards younger audiences. So I don't know if uh, one must view it at, on that level, but I have to see it again. It's, I, it's I, one I, of those. It's one of those films that have been tinkered with, by the way, um, it, you know, kind of like George Lucas did. I guess Spielberg went back and touched it up a bit and put some CGI in there, which I guess that could be a podcast one of these days, right? The yeah. ethic of touching up, <laughs> yeah. touching up your own movies. I think it goes back to your original question about why Jaws was, was this kind of blockbuster. And these films come out at a certain time and they encapsulate that, that, that particular period. And, and, you know, coming out in the summer, uh, height of vacation time, and, and and about summer and about vacation, this film just this it it hit all the buttons. Yeah, and I remember uh, people lined up around for blocks to see the movie. Like they would wait through a showing. Yeah. To see the next showing. 
Yep. Yeah. Kind of goes back to what we were saying with the exorcist, you know, just people really enjoyed, really enjoyed to be frightened and terrified. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a strange fasc- fascination. Even my daughter yesterday, uh, she, she didn't watch it with us, but she'd come through the room and she, something, you know, made her just sort of look and, and stare a bit. And at the same time, she didn't want to watch it. She wanted us to pause it. She wanted us to turn it off, turn it off, but she, she couldn't keep her eyes off it. And, um, she later told us that she's never going into the ocean again. Yeah, <laughs> Something we've all said after seeing that, right? Oh, For the gosh. first time. Yeah. Jeez. Fine by me because uh, beaches are usually too crowded for my taste, especially now. So, <laughs> yeah. so, any uh, closing thoughts, guys? Or have we uh, have we made our points, our piece with it's, this? It's really one of the great films in in, in cinematic history, I think. Certainly, yeah. and it, it doesn't. Nothing dates it. Right. It never gets old. Yeah. Now I'm saying that before we actually went on to is the, the fact that it was filmed in um, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, I forget which yeah. one. Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Um, the, town's, the town just is obviously timeless in and of itself. You know, they're not going out of their way to update anything there. They just, you know, the, the buildings, it looks like uh, it's just frozen in time, that whole area. Thank, you know, I thank goodness for that. Uh, so you go back, you go back there now and it's going to look the same and it, it just, for that reason, you're not seeing any dated buildings or dated cars. Yeah, yeah. dated hairstyles, dated bathing suits, dated everything, but not um, dated architecture. I want to go on record to say that a blazer covered with anchors will never go out of style. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you have one in your closet right now, right? <laughs> I have two. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, guys, this was fun. Uh, you know, celebrating Shark Week with you guys and, uh, it's it's been great so um for the classroom critics i am bill livers and thanks to uh, andrew martino and walter freeman um we will uh be seeing you next time in the meantime please go on to our facebook page rate us on itunes and please join us for our next episode of the classroom critics and take care and please stay out of the water